My name is Angela Blood, and I'm a director of curricular resources for a medical education society. I wrote this essay about a medical error in the emergency department that caused emotional trauma for me and my search for compassion in the aftermath. It's an early Friday afternoon, and while there are a million tasks on my to-do list, I'm on my way to the emergency department again. There have been so many hospital visits this year, I've lost count. I walk into the busy ED, check in, and tell them my chief complaint, shortness of breath. This is the latest in a long list of symptoms that are part of my underlying problem, autoimmune disease. I know, or at least think I know, what I need. I'm severely dehydrated. Once I get IV fluids, I should be able to breathe easier. I had an IV infusion of fluids on Tuesday, but its effects have worn off. I can barely walk a few feet without needing to stop. So although the symptoms feel familiar, they also feel severe. It doesn't seem safe to wait this out over the weekend. I call off from work and make arrangements for my daughter. I receive an ID bracelet and I'm taken back and forth from the waiting room to the triage areas for tests, including an electrocardiogram and chest x-ray, and then return to the waiting room until there's a bed available. As a frequent flyer to the hospital and ED, I'm familiar with the environment and workflow. The ED is a large new facility with bright natural light in the waiting room and modern medical equipment in the triage and patient care areas. While the ED is crowded and busy, it doesn't seem chaotic or frenetic. Its fast pace and full waiting room seem normal for a weekday afternoon. Hours later, it's night. I move from the waiting room to the patient care area, a large open space with private patient rooms all around the perimeter. In the center of the area is a cluster of clinician workstations surrounded by a high counter. I'm shown to a gurney alongside the counter, situating me in a wide hallway along the perimeter of the ED. A resident comes and lets me know that no blood clots were visible in my lungs on the x-ray, but I need a CT scan to be sure. He's also going to order a workup to screen for infections. I walk to a hallway bathroom to change into a hospital gown and provide a urine sample, which I assume is for the infection screening. Later, after a nurse tries unsuccessfully to place an IV, I'm a very hard dick, the resident returns. A new issue has come up, he tells me. A test run on the urine sample they took came back positive for pregnancy. I can't be pregnant, I say. The test must be wrong. He explains that the test is 99 to 100% accurate. I'm definitely pregnant. What else could cause a false positive pregnancy test, I ask? The only other thing it could be, he says, is a tumor so rare we'd be writing you up in a medical journal. Don't worry, it's not a tumor. You're pregnant. I try to explain that I understand he may hear people lie about their sexual history, but I'm telling the truth. I can't be pregnant because it's not physically possible. I have an intrauterine device, IUD, and I only had a short window of time without it during which I was not sexually active. He lets me know his shift is over, but someone else will come to talk to me. The implications of what I've just learned are hitting me like a freight train. I desperately wanted to have another baby someday, a future goal I've shared with my doctors. However, a surgery I'm scheduled to have the following month will eliminate my chance of becoming pregnant naturally. My mind trots along a line of magical thinking. Maybe God heard my wishes and has given me a baby. Then I turn to the darker implications. If I'm pregnant, the only possibility is that during the short window, when I didn't have an IUD, I had sex without my knowledge. I think of all the medical procedures I've had at this hospital under anesthesia. 
when I cannot know what did or didn't happen to my body. Oh my God, it is possible. An attending physician passes the other gurneys lined up along the clinician workstation counter and approaches mine. I am very cognizant that our conversation will be happening in this wide open space and other patients and clinicians may hear me. I hear you think we made a mistake, she says, and I realize I need to mend fences. I still need to be treated for my shortness of breath. I'm not trying to question the team, I explain, but if I am pregnant, that means I've been assaulted. I ask again if there's anything else it could be. She reiterates that the test is foolproof. Okay, I think if the medical team is right and they're sure they are, then I've been assaulted. Why did this happen to me? How did this happen to me? I may never know who did this to me. I'm not even sure with all my current health issues whether my body can carry a pregnancy. I'll need to postpone my surgery. I worry about the x-ray the medical team has just performed and whether that will harm that pregnancy. At the same time, I feel a kind of joy. I can't believe I inadvertently got my wish. My daughter will be so happy to be a big sister. The time I spend alone on my gurney in the busy ED hallway processing this unexpected news feels like it takes both minutes and hours. I try to rein in my feelings to achieve some level of inner calm. Then I recall a piece of information that leaves me reeling. I started a new medication recently, methotrexate, which causes severe and permanent birth defects or miscarriage. I may have unknowingly seriously injured or killed the baby I wanted so badly. Another nurse arrives and places an IV line in my upper arm. He draws some blood for labs, as well as some extra blood work that he leaves on the workstation counter next to my gurney. The work of the ED goes on, and it's an odd sensation to be both surrounded by people and feel so alone. Clinicians move quickly through the hallways, and I recognize some faces from my previous hospital stays. Patients are moved into and out of the private rooms around me. I lie on my gurney and silently cry while the world of the ED walks around me. Attending physicians, residents, nurses, registration staff, medical assistants, janitorial services, police officers, and others. I feel a bit embarrassed. By the gurney next to mine, a patient's family members look for spare chairs to squeeze in near him. I have no privacy to grieve or express my fears. Another resident comes to my bedside with a handheld ultrasound to confirm the pregnancy. After I arrange my patient gown and a hospital blanket so I'm exposing as little skin as possible, he squirts the cold ultrasound gel and places the ultrasound probe on my abdomen. Yep, no baby, he chirps. His tone leaves me with the impression that he thinks he's delivering good news. After he leaves, I pull over a corner of the sheet on my gurney to wipe away the gel. Hours after I was first told I was pregnant, the urine test is repeated. I'm not pregnant. All the fear, anxiety, devastation, horror, hope, and excitement were for nothing. If I'm not pregnant, then I expect I'll need an evaluation for the rare tumor the first resident told me was the only other possible explanation for the positive pregnancy test result. When I ask about this, my new resident says, it's not a concern anymore. I take that to mean that the first result was an error. I wonder whether some other patient's sample was inadvertently tested instead of mine, and if she's left the ED tonight without realizing she's pregnant. The infectious disease workup does not end up being ordered, 
and the extra blood work sitting on the counter next to me is thrown away. I am sent for the CT scan, which does not show any blood clots in my lungs. I do not end up getting IV fluids. The resident says they're going to discharge me, but I should follow up with my doctor. They move me to a private room just in time for me to change back into my clothes. I'm in shock, numb. It's after one in the morning. How am I going to go home and go back to my routine as if nothing happened? A nurse comes to give me my discharge paperwork and remove the IV. No one has asked me about what I experienced tonight, and I realize she is my last chance to tell someone here what happened to me. Oh, I'm so sorry, she says after I've relayed my story. Something similar happened to another lady last week in the ER. I appreciate her empathy, especially since it's the first compassionate conversation I've had during this experience. At the same time, I am horrified to know my experience isn't isolated. From the ED waiting room, I order a taxi home. As I gather my things and wait for the car, I notice that the ED waiting area has finally quieted and is almost empty. Outside the window, the sky has not yet begun to lighten. The taxi arrives, and on the ride home, I reflect on my chaotic night. I received the worst and best news of my life, and it was all a mistake. Afterward, I try to reconcile my experience. I fill out the Prescani patient satisfaction survey when it comes in the mail. One week later, I'm in the hospital for inpatient care. There's quite a bit of downtime during the day, and one of my nurses suggests I go for a walk if I feel up for it. I roll my IV stand alongside me to a patient experience office on another floor of the hospital, tell them about my recent night in the ED. I receive a form letter from the office a week later and notice that all the visit dates listed in the letter are incorrect. They must not have opened my patient file to investigate this incident yet, I think, and the inaccuracies make me question how well they documented my story. After I email the office to thank them for their time and correct the dates in their letter, I never receive a reply. Around this time, during an outpatient appointment with my regular doctor, I start to tell him about my night in the ED. Oh yes, I heard about that, he says, interrupting me. Are you over that yet? Living with chronic illness, I access the healthcare system more than most people. I recognize that medical care in the ED is generally about life or death. A person with non-life-threatening shortness of breath isn't going to be, and shouldn't be, the first priority. I also recognize that the ED environment and workforce are built for short-term triage, not for delivering sensitive news. Even so, and even amidst the busy chaos of emergency care, clinicians must have time to care and offer compassion. My experience in the ED and the subsequent follow-up, or lack thereof, illustrated to me that the error I experienced was viewed as routine or insignificant, the cost of doing business in the ED. I never learned how the error occurred or if anything was done to avoid it in the future. When my doctor asked me, are you over that yet? I said, no, I'll never be over it. I wanted him and other clinicians to see how detrimental this experience was for me. This error hadn't felt small, routine, or insignificant to me. While errors big and small are likely inevitable in a complicated system, responding to this error with empathy and awareness would have made a tremendous difference. Among clinicians, the repeated exposure to patients' emotional and physical suffering can lead to something called compassion fatigue or emotional and physical exhaustion as a consequence of caring, as Suzanne Hamilton and colleagues write. 
In a setting such as an ED, where patient turnover is high, the pace is rushed, and patient suffering is acute, clinicians are particularly at risk for experiencing compassion fatigue. Studies also have shown that clinicians' ability to demonstrate empathy is negatively affected by factors such as fatigue, chronic sleep deprivation, anxiety, and burnout. Again, ED clinicians may be especially vulnerable. Increasing compassion in emergency care could have widespread benefits, including improved patient outcomes, less medical error, less burnout, less litigation, and lower health care costs. Programs that facilitate the type of care that would have made my ED visit less traumatic exist and include the nurse model for demonstrating empathy, the Spikes protocol for delivering bad news, and the Clear Conversations program for improving conversations between providers and patients. Recently, a group of researchers engaged focus groups of patients, caregivers, and patient advocates with ED experience to take a first step toward creating a framework to teach empathy to emergency care providers. Their work identified five central themes to enhance empathy in the ED, including provider transparency, acknowledgement of patients' emotions, and listening. These central themes resonate with what I wish my experience in the ED would have been. Compassionate care would likely benefit every aspect of clinical work, but is essential when responding to medical error. And while communication and empathy tools are helpful, ED clinicians also need a healthcare system that facilitates and encourages their use. This means that ED clinicians need to be given time to spend with their patients, physical space for sensitive conversations, such as private areas or rooms in the ED, and training to make the best use of tools that are available. I have profound respect for clinicians. They do a job and live a life that would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, for many of us. Often, they are put in impossible situations where, despite their best efforts, patients experience a negative outcome. I try to approach encounters with clinicians with empathy, remembering that clinicians are people with their own emotional lives. I hope, in turn, clinicians remember the same about patients.